That uh, musical offering warmed us up for the Lord's Prayer that we're going to look at this morning. So if you can turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, I'd like to read Jesus' words uh, for us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. As part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches this. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is our request that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Our ears are open. Our hearts are ready to receive. And pray that you'd speak to us this morning. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are beginning a new sermon series for the fall season entitled Praying with Jesus uh, through uh, the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to be looking at this fall. And, of course, the interesting thing about prayer is that almost everyone does it. Uh, Prayer is a part of all the major religions, uh, of course, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Even people who are not religious pray. I think of that scene from the movie Gravity with Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. They're astronauts who get stranded in space when a firestorm destroys the satellite they're working on, and they are set adrift in space completely alone. It's a really chilling thought. In one scene, Sandra Bullock realizes that she's going to die all alone in space. And she says these words, we're all going to die. Everyone knows that, but I know I'm going to die today. Funny thing to know. But the thing is, I'm still scared. I'm really scared. Nobody will mourn for me. No one will pray for my soul. And then she starts to pray. Will you say a prayer for me? Or is it too late? I'd say one for myself, but I've never prayed in my life. Nobody ever taught me how. And maybe you've been in this situation. Maybe you're not particularly religious. But there's a point in your life at which you just started to pray, or you had this desire to pray, even though you don't necessarily believe there's a God. Our culture is becoming less religious, but I think it's still very spiritual. Because I think there's so many people who feel like there's something missing in life. And they're searching for the mystical and transcendent experiences. And what prayer is, prayer connects us to the divine. Prayer connects us to the transcendent. Almost everyone prays at some point in their life, but the interesting thing is almost no one does it well. So, for example, if you want to make a a Christian feel guilty, ask them about their prayer life. I mean, very rarely will someone say to me, my prayer life is going great. I'm really happy with my prayer life. Usually, people will say, you know, it's... Yeah, it's something I really need to work on. I'm just, I'm so busy. I want to pray, but I'm just, I'm too busy. In all the places I've been, 
In many churches I've been, church prayer meetings are always the most challenging meetings to get people to attend. And if it's any consolation, Tim Keller has said that 30 minutes of praying is harder than 30 minutes of preaching. He, he said this, he's like, you know, I know I, I've preached bad sermons. There, there have been sermons where I've, I've just, I've been rambling. I just, I'm not quite sure where I'm, I'm going. But I've never had a moment in preaching where I've said, wait a second, wait, I'm preaching. There's a congregation out there, and I, I, need to, I need to finish this sermon. But many times he says he's been praying, and he's forgotten what he's doing. I mean, it's this, it's this moment. I think we've all been there. We're praying, and then suddenly we're thinking about lunch, and we're waiting after lunch, and we're thinking about that email that we have to write. It happens so easily. Tim Keller says, spend 30 minutes praying, and you will discover how weak you are. If you want to learn how to pray. If you want to make a connection with the divine and with the transcendent, this sermon series is for you and for me. In the parallel passage in Luke 11, Jesus' disciples say, teach us to pray after hearing him pray. After years in public education, when I went to seminary, one of the very refreshing things was every one of my professors would open the class in prayer. It's very refreshing. And one of my professors that I sat under, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, one of the best things about his class is, of course, his, his teaching, but his prayer. At the beginning of class, to hear Sinclair uh, Ferguson pray for the class, it was so theologically rich and personal and vibrant. I heard him pray, and I said, I want to learn how to pray. When the disciples heard Jesus pray, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Prayer, in other words, is something we must learn. We're not automatically good at it. We don't come out of the womb like, I'm, I'm, I'm really good at praying. It's something that we have to learn. And that's why we're studying the Lord's Prayer, I think, this fall, is not to make us feel guilty, but to teach us how to pray. I think there's no better place to learn how to pray than with Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. I would suggest to you that it's a, it's a model prayer. It is kind of like a scaffold or a framing of a house. You have to add on to it. You have to fill it out. Um, and we do that. You fill out uh, the Lord's Prayer with your own prayer requests. It gives you categories. It gives you a, a framework to pray. You fill that out, and that's how you learn to pray. This fall, then, I'd like to consider the phrases of the Lord's Prayer, because I think it directs our own prayer. So to consider, what, what does this mean? We, we prayed just this morning, and sometimes it can go by, and it doesn't even like register with us mentally. What does it mean to pray, our Father who art in heaven? What does it mean to pray, hallowed be your name? What does it mean to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? What does that mean? That's what we'll consider together this fall. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. And before we get into the Lord's Prayer this morning, I want to look at Jesus' introductory teaching before he offers up this model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in verses 5 through 8. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus identifies three ways to pray, three approaches to God. Two are wrong and one is right. And so let's look at these three ways that Jesus uh, suggests that we pray. The first way that we pray, he suggests, is praying like a hypocrite. He says, verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, at first glance, if you saw these people, and if you didn't have Jesus' commentary on them, I think you would say there's nothing wrong with these people. In fact, they are people who love to pray. On the outside, then, I think you would look up, we would look up to them spiritually. 
They are people who are on fire spiritually. You're like, that, that person is really like growing spiritually. They show up for all the prayer meetings. 6 a.m. prayer meeting, they're there. All night prayer meetings, they're there. Every time the church gathers to pray, they're there. And not only do they show up, they pray with great fervency and passion. The problem is not that they love to pray. Jesus says the problem is that they're hypocrites. The Greek word here is the word for actor. It's someone who plays a role in a drama. And oftentimes in those days, they would wear masks. And so Jesus is saying these religious people are like actors. They're pretenders. They wear spiritual masks. They don't love to pray as much as they love to make people think that they love to pray. They're hypocrites. They give the appearance of loving to pray without the reality of it. Just as they love to, to pray standing in synagogues and on street corners to be seen. And, and again, the problem is, is not that they stand to pray. That was a normal posture in those days for prayer is that you'd stand to pray. Problem is not that they're praying in the synagogue. That was a place to, to pray. And there's, there's nothing wrong with public prayer. Uh, Trevor Anderson led us in a public prayer. Jesus led a public prayer at the tomb of Lazarus. Notice that the Lord's Prayer begins, not my Father, but our Father. It is designed to be a corporate public prayer. The, prob the problem is not praying in a synagogue in public. The, the problem is not praying on a street corner where we're called to pray without ceasing. And if it's late at night in New York City and you're on the street corner and you see some uh, suspicious people coming your way, it might be a wise thing to start praying at that point. The problem is not the posture or location of prayer. The problem is the motive. These people are praying on the street corners and in the synagogue to be seen. They're more interested in the reputation for prayer than the reality of it. It's like sometimes what happens half an hour in your home before company comes over. You scurry around, vacuum up your floors, you stuff all your junk in the closet, you, you yell at your kids to put away their toys, and you like scoop up all the dirty laundry and throw it into the laundry room, and you put your shoes away. You know, it never happens at our house, but suddenly... <laughs> it, when company comes over, why, why do we do this? It's because company is coming over, and we at least want the reputation for a clean house, if not the reality. It's also the world sometimes of applying to colleges. You know, we uh, parents of aspiring collegians, we do everything we can to figure out what the admissions officers are looking for. And then we go about trying to build the perfect college resume. So community service hours look great. So then we, we volunteer for the town rescue squad. Unique hobbies look really good. So then you take up bird watching or beekeeping. Leadership looks really good on your application, so you start a robotics club at school. Unusual athletic skills look good, so you pick up fencing. And sometimes you do these things not because you're really interested in them, but because they'll look good on your college resume. And the telltale sign is always the minute you get into college, you don't do community service anymore. You realize you hate bird watching. You're not even good at robotics, and you can't even remember why you started fencing in the first place. And you see, in this case, you're only interested in the reputation of these things than the reality. And Jesus is saying the, 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 the same dynamic can happen with prayer. We can be more interested in the reputation of prayer than the reality. It's performative spirituality. 
It's spirituality that's designed to impress the people around us. And that's not the purpose of prayer. I mean, prayer is, is fundamentally, it's communication with God. It's a, it's a conversation with God. And it, it would, it's a distortion to turn it into a performance before others. I mean, imagine what it would be like if every time I call up Tina on the phone, secretly without her knowing, I conferenced in a whole lot of other people so they could listen in. I could impress them with such a, what a good husband I am. I mean, that, that would be a distortion. You'd be like, what's wrong with you? And yet Jesus says, we do this with prayer. We turn communication with our Heavenly Father into a performance for others. How does this happen? I would suggest it happens in very subtle ways. You know, it can be as easy as this. We, we tell someone, like, yes, I'll pray for you, but then we never pray. I mean, we're more interested in the reputation of praying than really praying. Of course, if you're good with your words, there is always this temptation. If you're really an eloquent, an eloquent person, it just, it flows. And there are some people, it just flows. I mean, it's, it's easy to use that to your advantage to begin, like, impressing people. That's why you pray. It's like, I know I sound really good. I'm really good at this. And, and you uh, do that to impress others. It's, of course, a job hazard for anyone in ministry or, or for pastors. Here's a more subtle way that it takes shape. It's not praying out loud because you're really good at it, but it's not praying out loud because you're not very good at it. You see? When you make that decision, like, oh, I can't pray because I'm not very good at it, it's, it's also performative spirituality. It's, or, or it's the absence of it because I'm not good at it. And that's what I need to do. I need to like, impress people. I'm not going to do it because I can't. That also is giving into this mentality of performative spirituality. What is the antidote? Jesus says, verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, there's nothing wrong with public prayer. Jesus offers this up as a correction if you struggle with performative prayer. D.A. Carson says this. He says, the public versus private antithesis is a good test of one's motives. The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he is less interested in God's approval than in human praise. Not piety, but a reputation for piety is his concern. In other words, if you look at your prayer life and you find yourself praying more in public than in private... Maybe it's an opportunity to explore your motives. Why, why is that? Are you more interested in impressing people than in actually communing with God? Phil Reichen says that our public prayer lives should be more like an iceberg than the Titanic. See, an iceberg is the most impressive part of an iceberg is hidden from you. No one sees it. On the other hand, the most impressive part of the Titanic is above water and actually below water. There's, there's serious problems. And, and Phil Reichen says our, our prayer lives should be more like an iceberg than the Titanic. You know, part of us is very performative. That's just one of our weaknesses. We, we care too much about what people think. And because of that, there is a danger of praying like a hypocrite. Second way of prayer that Jesus identifies and articulates is praying like a pagan. Verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. When we use this word pagan, sometimes we use it to refer, or oftentimes we use it to refer to the irreligious or the immoral. But here, this pagan is very religious and prays long prayers with many words. 
And again, the problem is not long prayers. Jesus prayed all night. He prayed long prayers at points. Jesus prayed with repetition. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed the same prayer essentially three times. What's what's wrong with this pagan form of prayer? Jesus says he thinks he will be heard because of his many words. The pagan here is not performing for men, but in this case, for God. He believes that the better his performance before God, the longer he prays, the more fervent, the more words he uses, the more God will answer his prayers. So again, the hypocrite confuses the purpose of prayer and makes it a performance for people. The pagan confuses the basis of prayer and makes it a performance for God. So here's the problem with pagan prayer. It's the basis of prayer. The basis is the performance of the person praying. And it's essentially a works righteousness approach to prayer. I can earn God's answers to my prayers if I just pray long enough or use the right words or or do the right things. In essence, I would suggest that pagan prayer turns a relationship with God into a business relationship. A quid pro quo relationship. You do something for God and he must answer and do something for you. That's what a business relationship is, right? You pay, you perform, and the other person owes, they, they, they then owe you. And, and, and that, that relationship with God is you do certain things for God, and then God must do those certain things for you. And when we begin to think this way, we've just departed Christianity. See, that's how so many religions work, is you basically perform for God. You've got to do your penance. You've got to do your acts. And if God likes it enough, then he'll accept you, and then he'll save you. But that's not Christianity. Christianity says in Jesus Christ, God accepts us. And because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we are accepted. And therefore, it's not what we do that makes us accepted. It's what Christ has done for us that makes us accepted. In Christ, we're already accepted. We serve not in order to be accepted. We don't pray in order to be accepted. We pray because we've been accepted. We serve because we've been accepted. Pagan prayer makes our performance the thing that matters. Christian prayer makes Christ's performance thing that matters. We have acceptance before God because of what Christ has done. 1 Kings 18, there is this dramatic story of the project Elijah, the prophet Elijah squaring off against 450 prophets of Baal in this mighty test to determine who is a real God for the people Israel. And there are two models of prayer on display in 1 Kings 18. The 450 prophets of Baal were on one side. Elijah was on the other. And all the Israelites were watching this contest. Here are the ground rules. Each side was to place a bull on their altar, but not set fire to it. And then they were to call on the name of their God. And the God who answers by fire would demonstrate that he is the real God. So the prophets of Baal go to work. They choose their bull, they place it on the altar, and they start to pray. They call on Baal from morning till noon. But there's no response. Because there's no response, they begin to shout and dance around the altar. But there's still no response. And so they shout louder. And begin slashing themselves with swords and spears until their blood flows. And they do this all day until evening. But there's no response. No one answers. No one pays attention. And so then it's Elijah's turn. He puts his bull on the altar. And then he steps forward and prays a simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. 
Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. And then he responds to this simple prayer. The fire of the Lord falls from heaven and burns up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil around it. And all the people see this and fall down prostrate and cry out, the Lord, he is God. Two models of prayer. One is based on technique and requires many words and shouting and dramatic action. The other is simple and direct and based on who God is. And Jesus here is, is saying that we can approach prayer just like these 450 prophets of Baal. Anytime we turn prayer into a technique. When we think that for God to answer our prayers, we have to use the right technique, the right words, pray the right length, pray in the right place. We can even turn the Lord's Prayer into a technique. If we don't pray it from our hearts, we just pray the words. Our liturgical prayers in the service can become just a technique if we don't pray them from our hearts. and They're just words. See, when prayer becomes a technique, the focus is switched to the prayer itself and the God to whom you're praying. And perhaps a telltale indicator that we've slipped into this pagan mentality is how we respond when God doesn't answer our prayers. Do we get angry? If we get angry when God doesn't answer our prayers, what's going on? Usually it's this. Well, God, I've done all these things for you. I prayed. I've gone to church. You owe me. And, and you're not delivering. That it's performative prayer. If when God doesn't answer our, our prayers, we feel a vague sense of guilt. And we struggle like, maybe God's not answering because I'm not good enough. Or because I haven't prayed enough. Or I've used the wrong technique. You, you see, that also is, again, performative prayer. I haven't done it, I've done it right the right way or I've done it well enough. Jesus says this is praying like a pagan. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking to Christians. He's not talking to non-Christians. He's talking to Christians. And, say that we, and says that we can slip into praying like pagans. If praying like a hypocrite and like a pagan is, is not the right way, what is the Christian way to pray? Thirdly, Jesus commends praying like a child. There's one word repeated throughout this passage that would be striking to every Jew listening, and it's the word Father. In Jewish tradition, prayer was addressed to God, not as Father, but as Sovereign Lord or the Holy One or the Mighty One or the All-Powerful One. A Jew would never address God as Father. That was just far too intimate, far too personal, far too daring. It's Jesus that teaches us to address God as Father. And if you've grown up in the Christian tradition, this may feel familiar. You say, like, of course God's my Father. But no Jew in the first century would say, of course. He'd say, I wouldn't dare call God my Father. But Jesus is saying here that the essence of Christian prayer is approaching God as our Father, approaching Him as a child. See, notice the antidote to hypocrisy is verse 6. Go to your room and pray to your Father. The antidote to pagan prayer is verse 8. Your Father knows what you need even before you ask. Verse 9, the, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father. Not our creator, though that would be true. Not our king, though that would be true, but our father. Because the nature of father and son is far more intimate and personal and powerful than, than a creator and a creature. Or a king and a subject. One of the most inspiring uh, stories of fatherhood I've come across 
is the story about Dick and Rick Hoyt. Rick had cerebral palsy at birth and was unable to move his limbs or speak, but learned to speak through a specialized computer. When uh, Rick grew up in, and was a high school student, one of his high school classmates was paralyzed in an accident and in the school, and the school at the time organized a charity run in his honor. And Rick said to his dad, Dick, Dad, I'd like to do that. Dick Hoyt was not a runner, but he still managed to push his son five miles in that race, and Rick loved it. Rick typed out to his dad after that race, Dad, when we were running, it felt like I wasn't disabled anymore. And so Dick heard that, and he committed himself to training so that he could give Rick that feeling as often as he could. He got into such good shape that he and Rick were ready to run the Boston Marathon in 1979 together, but the race officials wouldn't let them enter since they weren't a single runner and they weren't really a wheelchair runner. But they joined in and they ran unofficially anyway. In 1983, they ran another marathon so fast that they made the qualifying time for the Boston Marathon the following year. Then someone said to Dick Hoyt, why not try a triathlon? Dick thought about it. He had never learned to swim, hadn't ridden his bike since, since age six, but you know, he learned to swim. He got back on his bike and, and got good at riding the bike and, and then started to run 26.2 miles while pushing his son in a wheelchair and then swam 2.4 miles while towing his son in an inflatable boat and then pedaled 112 miles on a bike designed to hold his son on the handlebars. Through March 2016, the Hoyts competed in over 1,100 endurance events, which included 72 marathons, six Ironman triathlons, and the Boston Marathon 32 times. In his 2010 book, entitled Devoted, the story of a father's love for his son, Dick Hoyt writes, I was running for Rick, my son, who longed to be an athlete but had no way to pursue his passion. I wasn't running simply for my own pleasure. I was, run I was simply loaning my arms and legs to my son. Dick Hoyt died in March 2021 at age 80, and Rick died this past May at age 61. If an earthly father loves his son this much, and does this much for his son, how much will our Heavenly Father love and care for us? Jesus says this is the essence of Christian prayer. It is understanding the fact that God is our Father and approaching him as his child. What gives us that right? What gives us the right to be called his children? It's because Jesus Christ, God's one and only Son, came into this world. Jesus Christ enjoyed intimacy and boldness and confidence in his relationship with his heavenly Father. And so when he came into this world, he came praying, Abba, Father. It's this term of endearment and intimacy. That's how Jesus prayed to his heavenly Father, Abba, Father. The only time he didn't pray that way was when he was on the cross. And he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the eternal Son was willing to be forsaken by his own Father for our sakes, for our forgiveness of sins, for our salvation, for our adoption as sons and daughters. The eternal son was forsaken by his father that we might become sons and daughters. Here's the good news of the gospel. God sent his son into the world to make us sons and daughters. And then he sent his spirit into our hearts to teach us to cry, Abba, Father, 
to give us the experience of being a son or a daughter. The good news of the gospel is through faith in Jesus Christ, God is our father and we are his sons and daughters. And my friends, that makes all the difference in prayer. See, who would Dick Hoyt run 72 marathons and six Ironman triathlons for? Not for a stranger, but for a son. Who wakes up the king at 3 a.m. for a cup of water? Only his son or his daughter. Prayer is not a performance. It's not a technique. It's a relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so who God is to us determines how we pray. Who is God to you? Is he just a distant deity that needs to be pleased? Is he a business partner with whom you need to negotiate? Or is he a heavenly father? If God is our heavenly father, that makes all the difference in how we pray. If we hardly pray, if we're fearful when we pray, if there's no trust when we pray, I would suggest we don't really know God as father. And Jesus is teaching us this. Pray to God as our Father, which we'll talk a lot more about next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent Jesus into this world to make us sons and daughters, that we might come to you as we are, as your sons and daughters, to you as our Heavenly Father. Lord, this fall season, would you teach us what that means? Teach us how to pray frequently and fervently and with great joy and trust and hope because you are a heavenly father. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.